Hey everyone, and welcome to De Facto. This is a podcast from the perspective of two students who are currently trying to survive the IB. I'm Amelia. And I'm Ju'i. And today, instead of working on my bio IA and our chem IAs and our psych IAs and our maths IAs, we're going to be talking about anaesthetics. That is a lot of IAs. <laughs> but let's go. So to begin with, we thought we would cover the etymology of anesthesia. So it's actually quite an interesting word because the prefix an is a Greek prefix meaning without, whereas aesthesis is also Greek and it means sensation. So if you put the two words together, you can see how anesthesia is actually just, it just means without sensation, the inhibition of sensation, which is exactly what anesthetics is. Yeah, so before we look at anesthetics, like we usually do, let's go into a bit about what the world looked like before anaesthetics. So to put it simply, it was pretty grim. Surgery was very rare because it was so traumatic for both the surgeon and the patient. A uh, a British author called Fanny Burney um, described her mast- uh, mastectotomy in 1811. So this is having um, uh, a whole or part of her breast removed. So this is quite a disturbing description. So skip forward if you don't want to listen. But she says, I began a scream that lasted intermittently during the whole time of the incision. So excruciating was the agony. And later she described her terror as one that surpasses all description. So I think this just kind of sums up the absolute horror that was um, surgery before anaesthetics. And whilst they did have some sorts of pain relief, such as alcohol and opiates, they were used actually very sparingly during surgery because doctors believed that a uh, a loss of consciousness was actually extremely dangerous. And so whilst they sometimes use pain relief before the medical practices, they rarely use them during surgery. And um, not surprisingly, the survival rate was not great. And it was basically a race against the clock to kind of reduce the patient's risk of dying from loss of blood or infection. So in one typical London Hospital, the mortality rate was actually one in four patients. So 25% of those who went into surgery wouldn't come out. And the lowest rate of um, death observed in London at the time was actually by a doctor called Dr. Robert Liston. And his kind of specialty was that he was very quick. And it's this that led to his considerably low mortality rate of just one in ten and he was so quick that that he could actually perform a leg amputation in just two and a half minutes from the first incision to closing up the wound which is pretty insane but all in all surgery was not a pleasant experience and hence it was used extremely sparingly before the use of antibiotics before the use of anaesthetics 
one in ten is honestly so crazy because that's like I mean even before surgery obviously you would be really scared of surgery even nowadays because you don't know what it's gonna hold but if imagine going into it knowing like you will experience everything during your surgery I can't imagine why anyone would do surgery I mean obviously it's kind of like a life or death situation but I can definitely see why it would be used a lot more sparingly so let's talk a bit about why anesthetics are so potent and let's start with another blast from the past so in our world, I think surgery is not commonplace, but I don't think it's rare either. So, for example, I think you probably know at least someone who had surgery. Um, I'm not sure if Amelia would like to share about that. Yeah, so I know in my family alone, both of my brothers have had minor operations before um, when they were younger. And I definitely know other people who have had surgery. How about you? Yeah, so um, my grand aunt has breast cancer, so she was she's going under surgery for that. So yeah, I do know someone who has had surgery as well, and I think although this is a really small sample size of just two people, I think it just goes to show that most people do know at least one person, or you know they know someone who has had someone have surgery in their family. So I think it's quite potent that surgery is quite a commonplace thing in our world, even though it's not exactly you know commonplace. So as part of surgery, you need to have an anesthetic. So I actually do have personal experiences with anesthetics. I had them twice, both to do with dental things, which is a horror I don't really want to go down, but let's relive it for relive it for the pleasure of this podcast anyway. So first of all, um the first time that I took I had some work done on my teeth was when I was pulling out my baby teeth. That was actually a really nice experience because I literally sat in the chair, they put in some cream, and I think like after like two minutes, I looked around and I was like, wait, why haven't they done anything yet? And the doctor was like, oh yeah, you can go, thank you. And I was like, wait, you're done? So it's really incredible because the fact is, I didn't even know that my tooth was being taken out. So that was really nice. And then another time was not so pleasant. So another time was... um was when I was having braces. So I needed to take out some teeth. And because of it, they made me take an anesthetic, obviously. But the thing with the anesthetic was, it was obviously local anesthetic. So it came, which we'll explain later. But essentially, it was just on my mouth and gum. And the needle was super long. Like, imagine putting your thumb and index finger apart. That's like, that. that's how long it was. And then it literally just like, was put, sorry, this is graphic. Skip ahead if you don't want to listen. But, um... It was literally put into my gum and just held there and I could feel that. So that was like quite an unsettling experience. And then after that, when they pulled out the tooth, I could actually still feel them shaking it. So although it didn't hurt, I could actually feel the sensations and that was quite disturbing. So as Amelia has pointed out, in the past, surgery was a last resort until the first public demonstration of anesthetics by William Morton and John Warren, who used ethyl ether at the Massachusetts General Hospital during surgery to remove a tumour on the left side of someone's jaw. So, that's actually not the first instance of anesthetics, that's just the first public demonstration. In fact, all throughout history, there have been anesthetics. So the first recorded use, as in specifically we have to mention that it's recorded because there could have been uses before this, but this is the first time it was formally written down. So in Japan in 1804, Physician Seishu Hanaoka had, did a partial mastectomy, which is um, similar to the surgery mentioned previously at the start. So he removed part of the breast on a, a 60-year-old woman, woman with breast cancer. 
So while the woman survived the operation, she died six months later. And the specific anesthetic that he used was a herbal concoction that was drunk that contained monkshood and thorn apple. So I think it's very much a testament to how medicine, especially in the older days, was very much plant-based. And it kind of calls to attention the idea between, you know, the conflict between herbal medicine and what we consider actual practice medicine, which is an interesting subject we might explore in the future. But... William Morton, who is the aforementioned physician um, who did the first public demonstration, discovered that when he or small animals inhaled this compound, ethyl ether, they would pass out. And he did this in the mid-19th century. So this was brought across the Atlantic to Britain, where British physician James Simpson found chloroform was better than ethyl ethers because it had no bad smell, it didn't irritate your nose or your throat, and there was no initial agitation after administration. So at first, people still didn't really use anesthetics because it took a while to be accepted. But after John Snow gave Queen Victoria chloroform during the birth of her eighth child, it became more popular. So developments in anesthetics continued with agents like nitrous oxide and actually even cocaine. But we don't use cocaine anymore because it's addictive and it stimulates the nervous system. Still, anesthetics we use today usually have the ending ane, like lidocaine. So lidocaine is a local anesthetic that causes temporary numbness in skin or mucous membranes, like lidocaine skin cream, which is used to stop itching and pain like from eczema. Uh, just a side note, nowadays we also no- don't use ethyl ether because it's flammable. And we don't use chloroform either because chloroform was accompanied by a hard, high rate of cardiac arrest, which is basically a heart attack when your heart doesn't beat. So nowadays what we use, in addition to all the compounds ending in ane, is halogenated ethers, like sevofluorane and isofluorane. So basically, ethers are two different groups. A bit of chemistry here. Um, ethers are two different groups joined by an oxygen. So halogenated is when the hydrogens are substituted for halogens, usually chlorine or fluorine. And in the case of isofluorine, um, that's both chlorine and fluorine. And for sevofluorane, it's just fluorine. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's so, because actually modern anaesthetics as we know them today actually is quite a recent development. And it's so interesting to see how even in just the last kind of couple of hundred, couple of hundred years, um, this kind of anaesthetics has come so far from the first, the initial ether ether to being used every every single day in uh, modern medicine. And I think that's quite amazing how it sort of transformed modern medicine so quickly. Yeah, I think that's really potent and it's quite astounding to see how fast science can develop. So moving on from that, we're going to be talking about the different types of anesthesia. So mostly, I think I would divide them into three categories, general anesthesia, regional anesthesia, and local anesthesia. So general anesthesia is probably what most people think of when we say the word anesthetic. It's when you go under, insert air quotes. So it's when you're totally unconscious of everything, and it's usually for more serious operations like knee surgery or hip replacements or heart surgery, because those are more delicate operations and those would therefore need you to be fully unconscious, which is why we use general anesthetic. So another type of anesthetic is regional anesthetic, and as the name suggests, it denotes a specific region of the body. So it is for deeper operations, but not as deep as 
general anesthetic requires. So one example is epidural anesthetic, which is the one that numbs your lower body during childbirth. So the final kind of anesthetic is local anesthetic, which is only a part of the body while you're still conscious. So I think that's, you know, the dental examples that I talked about above, those are all examples of local anesthetic. Yeah, so building on from that, I thought we'd have a quick look at kind of some more medical applications of anesthetics. So obviously they're used very commonly in general surgery. Um, And often when you're using uh, general anesthetic, anesthesiologists use kind of a combination of different types of anesthetics so this is usually a combination of regional like we talked about above inhalational which is where you get a mask put over your face and intravenous anesthetics to get the right balance for the patient and another quite cool um, application of anesthetics is during awake brain surgery so Quite often during brain surgery, the patient will actually be awake as this allows the surgeon to continually assess brain function throughout the procedure and to make sure that no serious damage is done because going even a millimetre too far to the right, for example, could damage a key structure in the brain. Um, So here anesthesiologists will administer anesthetics to the scalp area to make the operation more comfortable and also sedatives during some parts of the operation for example whilst they're taking out part of the skull however the brain itself does not need anesthetics as it doesn't actually have any pain receptors so the brain itself can't feel pain i think it's really interesting that brain surgery has been highlighted here especially because there's this um ongoing thing in the medical world that says neurosurgeons are, you know, the most difficult job, not least because the brain is such a delicate operation that if you damage the brain, you know, there are really serious consequences. Like even if you make a small mistake, if your knife slips or something, or you just dig one centimeter too deep, it can already have far reaching consequences. And I feel like that's also really interesting that because of it, people have actually developed this system where they have an awake brain surgery, as you've talked about. And I think it just goes to show like how we are developing different specifics just to make sure that patients can get the best opportunities and um, operative experiences possible. Yeah, definitely. So now looking a little bit about um, how anaesthetics work, and here it gets a little bit complicated. Um, so firstly with local anaesthetics. So these work by blocking nerves connecting particular parts of the body to the brain and therefore this stops the nerves from carrying pain signals to the brain. So the way this works is um, the anesthetics bind to proteins on the neuron cell membranes and this stops positively charged ions from getting in and this means that a negative charge builds up inside the cell which stops the neuron from transmitting electrical signals. So For example, one anaesthetic, which isn't used, it's it's used sometimes in surgery, is actually cocaine. And the anaesthetic properties of cocaine was actually discovered by accident when some of it landed on an intern's tongue and their tongue went numb. Um, So that's 
kind of how local anaesthetics works. And now looking at general anaesthetics, and this is where it gets a bit kind of foggier, and we're not entirely sure how this works. But basically, scientists have noticed that brain signals actually become much calmer when you're put under anaesthetics, even compared to sleep. When you're in sleep, actually, your um, brain waves are pretty active. Um, But when you're in the state of unconsciousness that anaesthetics um, kind of sets in, um, actually, your brain waves become much calmer which suggests that different parts of the brain are no longer communicating with each other. So although the kind of theory behind how general anaesthetic works is still very speculative and unknown, there was one study that actually suggests that um, anaesthetics, whilst they turn off some neurons, they also turn on others. So... In the study carried out on mice, scientists found out that neurons were being activated in a small area of the brain called the supraoptic nucleus um, when anaesthetics were administered. And when they then removed um, this brain region from the mice, they were no longer able to sleep. So this supraoptic nucleus could therefore provide kind of more of an understanding as to how anaesthetics actually work. I think that's really interesting and I think it's also it would also be interesting to explore the link between sleep and anaesthetics because you know just as one example when you sleep you dream but I don't think there are very common examples of when someone is under anaesthetic they dream. So I think it's quite interesting to look into that and obviously since research is still ongoing it'll be interesting to see whether that's actually one you know whether it's actually the same region of the brain that controls both sleep and anesthesia. So we came across like one of this a, a really interesting thing when we were looking up anesthetics and it was that smokers need more anesthesia. And that was quite interesting so we thought we would talk about it. So why do smokers need more anesthetic? Smoking itself is very complex because there are so many chemicals in cigarette smoke and they have varying bad implications. So just as two examples, if you smoke, you are more likely to have breathing problems before or during or after surgery and your risk of a heart attack is higher. Without surgery, smokers already have higher risks of heart attacks because by smoking, you're more likely to have narrowed blood vessels. So this basically means that oxygen, which you need to survive, can't get to your heart. And this is especially a problem if it has to do with the coronary blood vessels, which are the vessels that supply oxygen to your heart muscles, because that increases the risk of your muscles dying. And if your muscles die, your heart doesn't work, so you are more likely to get a heart attack. This is actually especially true and even more of a problem during surgery because blood flow is already restricted during surgery. So if it's restricted further because you smoke, well, the complications are obviously way worse. Directly related to anesthesia, studies have found that the complications due to anesthesia are a lot more present in smokers than non-smokers. So two particularly harmful chemicals that might help explain this phenomenon are carbon monoxide 
and nicotine. So these are two um, chemicals that we already studied in school and especially even in primary school, I remember learning about these things. So it's actually quite interesting to see again how our scientific knowledge, even in school, can have really good real life, well, not really good in this case, but can have actual real life implications. So carbon monoxide, obviously, as we learned, links to oxygen uptake because carbon monoxide binds to hemoglobin in the place of oxygen, which just exacerbates the problem we talked about. I talked about above. Nicotine, on the other hand, stimulates adrenaline, which causes you to have higher blood pressure because adrenaline activates the fight or flight response when you know you try and decide how you are going to respond to incoming danger. So your heart has to work harder, and that you know, just forces your cardiac muscle to work harder, which again is an exacerbation of the problem talked about above because if your heart has to work harder but you can't get enough oxygen to it, that's obviously a problem. So, so far all these implications for smoking and anesthetics are focused on the heart, but this is because the heart is one of our most vital organs because, you know, um, if you don't have a heartbeat, you kind of die. But um, the impacts of this are actually far-reaching and we encourage you to go look up the effects of smoking not just because it's related to surgery and anaesthetics but also because it can have other implications. So, if, so even if you're not going to have surgery, an understanding of what is in smoke is probably also beneficial for you to make informed choices about your health. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because like you said, in school we learn about the kind of health effects of smoking but in relation to lung cancer and um, COPD and other diseases like that and actually looking at the extent of the damage caused by smoking actually extends beyond that and it can have implications even in things like surgery which I personally wasn't aware of before we researched for this. So I think that's really interesting to just kind of understand a bit further some of the less well-known implications of smoking. So now we thought we'd briefly talk about the some of the side effects of anaesthesia. So whilst a lot of these side effects do go away, they are very commonly experienced. So probably the main side effect that is experienced is nausea and this can be triggered by factors such as medication, motion, and the type of surgery. Another common um, side effect is a sore throat, particularly if the patient has had a breathing tube put down their throat during the surgery to help them breathe, as it can dry out and also um, just kind of hurt the um, breathe. The it can just hurt when it's taken out. So another common um, side effect is post-operative delirium and this is confusion basically um, and there are ways of reducing the impact of this so for example being in a familiar environment such as returning home shortly after your surgery can help um, decrease the impact of post-operative delirium um, but it doesn't have to be for patients who can't go home it doesn't have to it can be even simpler than that for example even something as simple as wearing your glasses or hearing aids can can help to alleviate post-operative delirium yeah i think it's not directly related to post-operative delirium but i remember like after i got my local anesthetic i think one of the implications was that 
after the anesthetic wore off, you started being able to feel all the pain. So like, you know, after I got my tooth removed and actually after that, like a couple hours after, I remember I was just lying on the floor. We have this thing where if we're sick, we kind of lie downstairs because it's much cooler because Malaysia is really hot, it gets up to 35 degrees. So we literally lie under the fan downstairs on a mattress and it's kind of really nice because everyone like just moves around and stuff, but we can just see everything, which is quite chill, which is nice. But I digress. Um, but basically, I remember lying on the floor in pain. And it kind of continued from the, when the anesthetic wore off. So I think that's also quite a sad thing that because you don't have that pain while you're in surgery. But post-op pain is still very much a thing like Amelia talked about. Um, not just with delirium but with also with actual physical pain. And I think it's, yeah, I think, I think while anesthetic can definitely help it definitely doesn't do great for post-operative recovery. Yeah, and that ties quite nicely into the final side effect, which is muscle aches after surgery. Um, And so this is usually a result of medications used to relax the muscles during surgery. Um, And then just finally, two further further, uh, symptoms, sorry, two further side effects are itching and chills and shivering which again are extremely common and experienced in up to 50 percent of patients although as i mentioned earlier these are all temporary um temporary side effects that usually go within about a week of surgery cool so we thought we would bring awareness to another phenomenon that some people experience during surgery which I never heard of before this, so it was actually quite worrying to discover. But let me tell you more about it. So there's this thing called anesthesia awareness. And basically anesthesia awareness is when you wake up during the surgery, when you're supposed to be under anesthesia. But don't panic yet. Let me just clarify that this is really rare. So it's only one in two, one or two people in every 1,000 involving general anesthesia. So not other kinds of anesthesia, just general anesthesia. And that figure is 0.1% or 0.2%. And two-thirds of these people who wake up don't feel pain or distress. They're just conscious. So basically, you know, you know what's going on around you, but you don't feel any pain. So it's actually, you know, just you're awake, but you don't feel anything. In fact, updated statistics for the UK suggest that that figure is 1 in 15,000, not in every 1,000. So actually, anesthesia awareness is really rare. But we thought we would talk about it anyway because it's quite an interesting thing. So obviously, the data that we have presented and the statistics should be treated with caution. Um, specifically, the 1 in 15,000 statistic is from senior anesthetists in the UK. And there might be a risk of underreporting because ultimately, you know, it's the patients who feel anesthesia awareness and not the anesthetists. But it's still not like the hospitals don't have precautions. So I remember when I was in a knee surgery, I was observing a knee surgery. Um, there are a lot of heart monitors, you know, that trigger your heart rate, but also, you know, all those brainwave monitors that kind of make sure that either, you know, you're still under and unconscious or if you're, you know, they can monitor these signals and the changes in the different, you know, heart rate or brainwaves, depending on the surgery that you're doing. And that would actually allow them to make sure that you are, you know, actually not experiencing this pain while in surgery. 
And I remember like when I did my local anesthetic um, with the needle injection into my gum when they were going to take out my tooth, I remember they actually asked me when I couldn't feel anything. And you know, that obviously it's not the same with local anesthetic because I can still move my hand and say, you know, help, I'm not feeling anesthetic anymore and, you know, wave my hand around. But it was actually the case that when after they put it in, they kind of said, okay, can you let us know when you don't feel anything? And I think they got me to count backwards and my jaw went slack because, you know, counting mouth and at some point I just couldn't count anymore. But that was definitely a precaution that they took. So it's it's not as if, you know, if you have anesthesia awareness, you're just going to stay awake. And it's not like sleep paralysis where, you know, you can't do anything about it because you can definitely do some things about it. Anesthesia awareness also varies with the individual because um, it's not as if you're awake the whole time with anesthesia awareness. You can be, but actually some people just have brief recollections of some various things that happen, while others just remember specific instances during the surgery. Like maybe you wake up for one minute and then you realise, oh, mm, the, the doctor's currently on my right and then, you know, this is happening. But after that, you don't remember anything. So... Anesthesia awareness is more common with people with other medical conditions, but as always, this is why surgeons take medical history. Medicine is very much a collaborative thing, so just as a reiteration from last episode, before you do a knee surgery, for example, a cardiologist will also check you to make sure that your heart can take the stress of the operation, and that also links into smoking like I talked about just now, because people the surgeons and all the official leaflets of the NHS that I looked at actually actively encourage you to stop smoking before your surgery. And even one day can make a huge difference in that. Yeah, that was really interesting. And I think, like you said, it's not something that people really know much about. But actually, I know somebody who has experienced anesthesia awareness. And although I don't know the details, they were a parent of a friend, so I didn't really have a conversation with them about it but they were in a knee operation and they were awake but they weren't awake um and from what I gather it was pretty traumatic although he has since made a full recovery and hasn't had any further surgeries but yeah I think it's it is an important problem to be aware of that people do face this but like you said it is extremely rare um and extremely uncommon and even if you do experience it it is usually just like instances or you don't have any recollection of it so i think that kind of sums up what we are going to talk about today yeah i think in general i think that's it for today i think what we generally just wanted to do as we've started developing with this podcast is kind of take you through what's been done in the past, take you through what's going on in the present, maybe talk about some of the issues that are going on today, sometimes talk about the future. Although I don't think anesthetic future is something that we've really talked about, I think if we do want to consider it, I definitely think that most of the technologies are going to be focused on just making this experience more pleasant for everyone. So in the example of anesthesia awareness or stopping smoking, these are all just programs that people are trying to raise awareness for and just trying to make sure that they combat. So although, you know, anesthesia awareness is a very terrifying thing, as we've mentioned, it's very much a thing where the doctors are going to try and provide the best possible care for you because that's what doctors do. And they 
do genuinely want the best for you. So just um, I think in regards to that, definitely just talk about it, but also have faith that your doctor will tell you if it's a complication. Because as I've mentioned, it only usually happens to people with other medical conditions. So in general, this is just a summary of where anesthetics have been in the past and how that's developed into anesthesia today and just generally spreading awareness about anesthesia because it's definitely not something that's usually discussed but actually a lot of people encounter it in our daily lives. So yeah, that's it. Thanks for listening.